This is Age of Treason Radio. On the White Network. your host, Tan Stoffel. The Murder of Mary Fagan, Part 10. This time, I'm going to contrast two arguments in Frank's favor. One from Carlos Porter, continuing from the last time, and hopefully I'll have time also to get into Governor John Slayton's commutation of Leo Frank. Now, uh, Carlos Porter actually posted some comments on my last installment, and uh, the good news is that he came and, and uh, responded to my criticism. The bad news is that uh, there wasn't really anything new to me in it. It seemed like just a, a repetition of what he had already stated. In fact, he had he copied and pasted a lot of what I had already cited and what I was talking about. Uh, but at least that confirms that what I read was what I thought I read. And uh, by reiterating it, uh, he's Carlos Porter has confirmed that. Uh, I, it's connected to the governor and his commutation. Uh, that's an important document as part of the case. But uh, Porter himself points at that document. Uh, as an authority, as, as the source of his opinion, or at least the main source, he says the commutation file is the best in most ways. And read the files, okay? There are 29 of them, are uh, two of the hints that he gives that this is where his opinion was formed, uh, can be found in that commutation file. And he did go to the trouble of transcribing it, which uh, made it much easier for me to read. So the issue, again, I, I listened to the thing the last time, and what I had to say, and it was a little bit disjointed and a little bit off the cuff rather than from notes. So, um, and this time it's probably going to be similar. I have notes, but there's a lot to say. And um, let me start out by saying that, first of all, um, as I've made clear all along in the, in the very first installment, I'm relatively new to the Mary Fagan murder and the trial of Leo Frank. Uh, my work and investigation on it began back in December, and this is part 10 of my continuing education of myself and hopefully uh, listeners as well that uh, maybe weren't as familiar with the case uh, like I wasn't uh, before. And so basically I'm not an authority on this case, but I've learned quite a bit in uh, the investigations that I've done so far, and there's you know, 10 episodes to listen to if, if you're curious about what I've learned. Uh, Carlos Porter, in contrast, seems to understand the details of the case very, very well. And that's one of the reasons why I was frustrated 
to and bristled at, at him saying that none of the other evidence really matters. It's really all just about Conley. I saw that and described it the last time as a technique of focusing on a single issue when the case is really much more than that. It's much more than just Jim Conley's testimony. He is at the center. I don't deny that. I think uh, everybody understands that his testimony was key. But if he didn't exist, if he hadn't been in the factory that day uh, and Frank had committed the murder without his help and, and didn't have Conley to help dispose of the body, then the case would have been brought in a different way. And what, whether Leo Frank was convicted or not uh, might have been different, might have turned out differently. Um, one thing, though, that I can say about myself is I am familiar with argument and I am familiar with logic and I'm familiar with emotional arguments as well, like the kind that uh, Carlos Porter uses. So I do feel very confident to critique his argument. And basically what I've what I said the last time and what I'll reiterate this time is. I don't I'm not convinced by his argument. And uh, that's basically it. I don't buy it. And uh, I've tried to explain already why I don't, but I'll get into some more specifics here because he reiterated and I'll take some of the examples that, that he gave. And, you know, one of the points that he makes is that people run away from this point that he's hammering on, the bit, the bit about the notes that Conley wrote. And I don't know, I'm not running away from the notes at all. I, I'm focused directly on the notes and I will focus on them this time. So that's not the issue with me. He, uh, Porter writes, uh, just to refer back to something I cited the last time, the evidence provided by Conley, particularly the death notes, proves, in my view, that Frank's guilt is not only, and this is where he starts italicizing, out of the question, but absolutely impossible. Now, proves is too strong a word to use there. And out of the question and absolutely impossible also really too strong the what uh carlos porter argues does not prove what he claims it to prove now he the the comment the very first comment he wrote he wrote a series of eight or so on the last installment but the very first one i'll start there and i don't intend to go through them all and through every point it's he's kind of repetitive and despite his claim at the very start of his argument that it's all about conley by the sixth or fifth or sixth comment that he makes, he's starting to bring in other things that have nothing to do with Conley. And uh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about those other things. I'll talk about Conley and I'll talk about his notes. So what uh, Porter writes in the first comment is Frank cannot have dictated those notes. Now, maybe he didn't listen the last time, but I uh, basically agreed. I, I, I'm not so certain as Carlos Porter, but I think it is a convincing argument that he's made, that the governor, uh, Governor Slayton makes, that Frank didn't actually dictate the notes, that it was actually Conley writing, and that Conley decided what to put in those notes, for the most part. That it might have been suggested by Frank to write the notes, Frank might have suggested what to put in the notes vaguely, about blaming somebody else, uh, 
he might not have done it at all. He might not have said anything or known anything about the notes. That's where I go even a step beyond anything that Carlos Poder has suggested or even in his follow-up comments, apparently he missed that. And I didn't make a big point of it the last time. I basically just wanted to say, let's just assume that Jim Conley wrote the notes t- entirely of his own initiative for some crazy reason. Maybe he thought it would somehow save his boss, and, and that was the, the explanation that uh, that I imagined is he, he knew it wasn't him that did the murder. He knew it was his boss, and so he thought, well, what have I got to lose? I, I might be able to save my boss by trying to blame somebody else, and that was why he blamed a, a tall Negro rather than a, a short Negro like himself because uh, he was conscious of the fact that he needed to blame somebody else, not himself. He didn't want to implicate himself. But he didn't think he was in danger of doing that. So uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Uh, And that's just for the first sentence that uh, Porter wrote. I better move along here. Uh, Porter continues, at most he could have said, hey, Jim, why don't you write a couple of notes and pretend you're the girl and uh, say a tall, slim Negro did it since you're short and stocky. Okay, boss. Now, this is the part. He's copied and pasted this from the document that I previously cited and previously read. So he does entertain the possibility. But as I pointed out in my response, my written response to him, he entertains the possibility only to dismiss it, only to reject it out of hand. And this is how he does it. He writes a rhetorical question or actually a series of rhetorical questions. He writes, what would be the point to that? Why would Conley agree to do that for any amount of money? As soon as the word got out that Conley wrote the notes, uh, well, look, I explained in my podcast the last time what would the point to that be. The point of Frank asking Conley or suggesting to Conley to write notes, or even of Conley thinking of doing that himself, is to cast blame somewhere else, away from Frank. Now, either Frank could have suggested that because Frank is clever, And Frank might have seen immediately the value of having a note written by a Negro that immediately casts blame away from him. So he doesn't even have to say what to put in the notes. He just has to say, you know, give Conley the idea. Hey, uh, my gopher, do this for me. Do me this favor. And by the way, there's some money in it for you. You know, it's a combination of motives that that might have motivated Conley to do it. And Conley is an idiot, right? He's stupid relative to Frank. Maybe he didn't see that this would come back to bite him at the time. As I said, at the time, it was fresh in his mind that his boss was the one who did the murder. He wasn't worried about being accused of committing the murder, but he might have been. uh, And and this is all speculative, um, I uh, have to say, because I don't know for sure. And I want to make sure that it's understood that I'm not asserting that this is the way it happened. I'm not imagining a possibility and then saying for certain that's what happened. All I'm saying is that it's possible to imagine other possibilities or, or reasons for these things to have happened, whereas Carlos Porter's argument seems to be this might have happened, but why would it happen? I can't imagine why it would happen. And the implication seems to be that since he can't imagine why it would happen, nobody else should be able to imagine why it would happen, and if they do imagine that it might happen. It's only because they're stupid or crazy. And I don't feel that way. I don't feel stupid or crazy suggesting the things that I suggest because they seem they're not a stretch. The point of Frank requesting Conley write a note 
could have been to direct suspicion away from himself. That's you know my main point in response. That is not a stretch. That's not something that requires a, a great imagination. And yet that's something that Carlos Porter has not yet conceded, hasn't thought of himself yet, because he doesn't want to think of it. I, I think he, as he himself says, he convinced himself 30 years ago, for who knows what reasons, that Frank was innocent. And this argument was drawn up long after the fact, and it really doesn't make a good case for why. Uh, it just basically is a, him asserting that this is his belief, and he can't imagine any other belief is better or, or more reasonable. So that's in a nutshell, you know, my evaluation of uh, Porter's argument. Porter seems to be arguing that Conley, the stupid, drunken Conley, should have been smart enough to know at one point that he argues that the, the police would match his handwriting and definitively connect the notes back to him. I don't think Conley was that smart. I don't think he would have thought about police matching his handwriting, especially if he was drunk at the time. He was aware enough in writing the notes, and I don't deny that Conley was the one who wrote the notes. But he was aware enough that he needed to deflect attention away from himself, and that's why he specifically wrote the long, tall Negro, you know, being pretty much redundant in the characteristics that would distinguish from himself, except for the Negro part, which was in common. And the reason for the Negro part, that might have been at the suggestion of Frank. But, you know, it's easy to blame a Negro. Frank would have known that, and even Conley would have known that. He was aware enough of the suspicion redounding back to him that he denied being able to write at first when he was first uh, arrested. And it didn't come out until further question. That's one of the things that was revealed gradually. It didn't change the nature of his story. It just revealed more of it as it went on, and it made more sense. He was aware enough to try and cast suspicion on somebody who wouldn't be mistaken for himself. When he wrote the notes, what was freshest in his mind was that he wasn't, he didn't do it. So he didn't think, again, speculating, that it would come back to him. If anything, it would come back to Frank. So he might have actually written the notes to save himself. You know, let's assume maybe he did do it. And maybe he wrote the notes to save himself. But if you imagine that his boss is the murderer and maybe hinted that he should write the notes or, or told him to write the notes, that makes it even easier to imagine that he would write the notes. Because a lot of the reasons that Porter gives as to why it's so stupid for Conley to have written the notes or for Frank to have dictated them are things that would have been stupid if Conley had create, uh, committed the murder and decided to write the notes. In that case, and this is part of the, the problem with um, Porter's argument, another uh, flaw I see in it, is at times he seems to assume that Frank is an idiot and Conley is brilliant rather than the opposite reality. Uh, and this is an example of it. You know, in the case of where um, it supposedly was Frank who committed the murder, then Conley would have to be an idiot to have written that note. He should have known, anybody would know, that it would come back, uh, that he would be uh, found out, that the author of the notes would be discovered. I don't think that at all. That's that's not a reasonable uh, conclusion at all for a dumb Negro to to know. Now, here he, he reiterates, people who believe Frank was guilty do not like to discuss the notes in any detail 
because logically they prove that Frank was innocent. There it is in a nutshell what his conclusion was. He keeps uh, just restating that same basic point. So I don't think it's unfair when I characterize um, Porter's argument, when I say it boils down to the simple non sequitur that Conley wrote the notes, he lied about Frank being the one who told him what to write, therefore Frank is innocent. That's the leap of logic that I talked about the last time, and that hasn't changed. It's really just uh, Carlos Porter has now reiterated it again. Uh, to sum up, he writes, there were two notes, only one of which mentions the Night Witch. Even if Night Witch means Night Watch instead of Night Witch, a common element of African folklore, a clear distinction is still be- made between the Night Witch and the Long Tall Negro Black. There are clearly two different entities or people. That same note says that the Night Witch didn't do it. What is the sense of that? Here's another one of these rhetorical questions. Now, in this case, I don't see any sense in it either, but it seems irrelevant. So what that there's no sense to it? I mean, on the one hand, Carlos Porter argues that Conley is an idiot and a drunk and untrustworthy. And yet here he seems to be uh, saying the opposite, that, that somehow it's got to make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then therefore Frank is innocent and Conley's guilty. I, it, it, that argument just doesn't make sense. It's uh, Carlos Porter's argument that doesn't make sense. A Negro would automatically be suspected of the crime. What difference would it make to Frank? Which one? That's right. Which dif- what difference would it make? But Frank was certainly interested and certainly smart enough to try and implicate one of the two Negroes in his employ rather than himself. How would the notes implicate Newt Lee, the night watchman, if they were in Conley's handwriting? Well, there's the logical disconnect again. Now, Porter is pretending he's stupid, that he can't imagine that Conley was too stupid to realize that his handwriting would be tracked back to him. Conley could very well have imagined, while he's writing this note, that, yes, it would be believed that it was some other Negro, not himself, that wrote the note. And he, he, the notes led the police to Conley, who led the police to Frank. Anyone could have predicted this. There he seems to be implying that Conley now is really smart and did this on purpose because he wanted the police to be led back to himself so that he could lead them to Frank. And, you know, because he had actually committed the murder, he wrote the notes because he wanted to blame it on Frank. That uh, That's the best sense I can make of uh, Porter's argument in that case. Now, Porter makes a lot of similar arguments, and I won't bother repeating and going through everyone in detail. As uh, He also brings in a bunch of other things that really have nothing to do with Jim Conley or Jim Conley's notes, and I'm not going to address those either. But there are two other things that I would like to address. One is he writes, Slayton was a politician, and the file contains a lot of double talk for the simple reason that he didn't want to make his constituents any matter than necessary. As it was, he had to call out the National Guard for four nights. The woods behind his house was full of armed men trying to break into the house. What he's addressing there is the point I made the last time, I think. Uh, Governor Slayton's commutation document actually lists the arguments as to why Leo Frank was guilty that had nothing to do with Jim Conley. And so he's basically trying to dismiss that as double talk, as excuses that he, he knew he had to placate these people who would kill him if he said anything else. 
I don't buy that. I think that instead what he was doing was basically reflecting what the popular opinion was at the time of the people who had evaluated the case and that his the first part of his document, he provided uh, two parts. The first part was uh, a good description of the facts of the case, fairly stated, including the fact that Leo Frank was rightly accused and, and rightly convicted, justly convicted. The other point that Porter raises is about the webmaster of leofrank.org. He says that he spent about six weeks arguing with him about the case and about those notes in particular, the death notes. And at one point, he admitted to me that, quote, those notes are an absurdity, unquote. I pounced immediately and said, quote, so you admit that you believe in an absurdity, unquote. You know what he did? He changed the subject. This is what people always do when you mention those notes. They run away. That is why I concentrate on them. I ask the question, I want an answer. I hope I've answered the question. The problem is is that Carlos Porter asks a series of questions. He asks questions and over and over and over again, and it seems as if he doesn't want to hear answers to the questions. They are rhetorical questions. He doesn't expect an answer. He doesn't want an answer. doesn't want to hear the answer. Uh, I don't have a problem with the leofrank.org site. I've never communicated directly with the uh, the webmaster there, so I, I can't speak to Porter's point about that. Uh, but as far as believing in an absurdity, I guess you can call it an absurdity if you want. The notes, they do seem absurd. But Carlos Porter believes in them. He believes that they absolutely prove that Frank is innocent. So he believes in the absurdity, too. Uh, stating that they are an absurdity or that you consider them absurd uh, and that they were written by Conley, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that the workings of Conley's mind are absurd in uh, the terms of uh, a thinking white man. I think that, to sum up Porter's argument, I think it's bluster, basically. It's repetition, and it's based on trusting his authoritative opinion that he doesn't think that Frank was guilty. It's based on raising a bunch of possibilities, you know, first, he narrows the case down to just being about Jim Conley, and then he you know, raises all of these questions, all these possibilities that he then implies he can't answer and that nobody else has ever answered either. When, in fact, some of the things he mentions are kind of silly, they're irrelevant or they don't matter, or they have reasonable answers to the questions. He comes at it as if the premise, his premise the whole all along is Frank is innocent and, you know, I can't imagine any other possibility. So moving along now to the Slayton commutation, and I, this is probably going to spill over into the next installment. I apologize for that. But, the, you know, Slayton, in contrast, actually makes a non-repetitive argument and a very sensible argument. It comes in two parts, really. There's a first part where he describes the case, and I really value his description, because it it's long, uh, for anyone who's new to the case, it's it looks daunting because the document itself is is rather long, but it's it actually boils down the most important highlights of the case, the most important points, and I think he does a fair job of in his decision about what to include, what to not include, what to talk about, and, and this is the part that I was referring to when I said that Slayton provides reasons why Frank was guilty and acknowledges them uh, that have nothing to do with Jim Conley. Now, at the very start of the document, he mentions racial prejudice, and he says the charge against 
the state of Georgia of racial prejudice is unfair. A conspicuous Jewish family in Georgia is descended from one of the original colonial families of the state. Jews have been presidents of our boards of education, principals of our schools, mayors of our cities, and conspicuous in all our commercial enterprises. He doesn't mention, uh, as far as I remember, uh, that he is in a law firm. He's partners with Jews. And, uh, in fact, Rosser, one of the defense attorneys, the, the lead defense attorney, uh, is a partner in his law firm. So there was a conflict of interest when Slayton uh, was governor and, and uh, decided this commutation of Frank. And yet, in my estimation of reading this, the first part of the document lays out fairly uh, the reasons why Frank and acknowledges that Frank was guilty, essentially. Uh, the facts of the case... Um, this is an interesting note because I found the same note, and it might have come from here, uh, on uh, Hugh Dorsey's closing arguments at, as a preface to it. It said, many newspapers and non-residents have declared that Frank was convicted without any evidence to sustain the verdict. In large measure, uh, like Carlos Porter, for example, in large measure, those giving expression to this utterance have not read the evidence and are not acquainted with the facts. The same may be said regarding many of those demanding his execution. Now, I'm not demanding his execution or saying it was right, and I acknowledge that Carlos Porter knows probably more of the details of the case and has been familiar with it longer than I have. So uh, um, the governor continues, In my judgment, no one has a right to an opinion who is not acquainted with the evidence in the case, and it must be conceded that those who saw the witnesses and beheld their demeanor upon the stand are in the best position as a general rule to, to reach the truth. That is a point that I've... Uh, made several times during my review of this case is that basically I trust that the jurors and the prosecutors did their jobs honestly and fairly. They did the right thing and that they didn't have dark motives. They didn't have uh, nefarious motives in trying to convict Frank wrongly. And that was another uh, element of Carlos Porter's argument was that according to him, the police and the investigators uh, put Jim Conley up to making up the story, that they coached him as to what story to tell. And um, that would mean that they did something wrong and that they did it knowingly wrong. They told him, uh, they told a witness to lie. And I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe that. And I think it's, there's no, uh, or not no evidence, but there, there's little evidence for that. And Carlos Porter doesn't present any evidence for it either. Uh, the usual evidence, supposedly, is the anti-Semitism, the rampant anti-Semitism in Georgia at the time. And even Carlos Porter acknowledges that there, it's, there was no anti-Semitism until after uh, the Jews uh, started trying to manipulate the investigation and the trial. Uh, the governor mentions the cook and the cook's uh, uh, husband, the uh, housekeeper, the black uh, mammy, who supposedly overheard the conversation between uh, Leo Frank and his wife, where he admitted that he had committed the murder, has nothing to do with Jim Conley, neither one of those people's uh, affidavits. And even though it was basically uh, they, uh, she changed her story and it was not considered evidence, the governor says that it, w- it made a, must have been had a strong effect on on the jury. He also mentions the uh, that Leo Frank either manipulated the time slip for Newt Lee, or was so nervous or excited about what he was doing that he screwed things up inadvertently uh, and why was he nervous so that's again another thing that 
has nothing to do with Jim Conley, and it says bad things about uh, Leo Frank and his mindset. In fact, um, let's see here. Uh, I'm just I'm trying to skip over some of this stuff to get to the main point here. He, the Governor Rice, I have not enumerated. He mentions Montine Stover, too. I have not enumerated all the suspicious circumstances urged by the state, but I've mentioned only the ones that appear to me to be the most prominent ones. And there are several that don't involve Jim Conley. Um, he does talk about Jim Conley, and that's in part two, where he tries basically to uh, uh, say that there's doubt about the case because he wants to commute the sentence. That is what he's motivated to do, and so he spends the second part finding a legal technicality based on these this doubt that exists, that he says exists. And this is what Carlos Porter alludes to, the doubt about who wrote the letter, why they wrote it. Um, you know, basically, the, I think that the jury and several judges decided unanimously that the circumstantial and character evidence was conclusive. Slayton only expressed doubt about Frank's guilt. That's all he took issue with. And not that he thought Frank was innocent. Definitely not, like Carlos Porter says, that it proves that he was that it's absolutely certainly innocent. That's just ridiculous. Ridiculous.